please join me in welcoming Yossi Chayas for our three-part lunch series. Thank you, Ari. Thank, thank you, all of you, for coming out yet again. It's so impressive. And uh, I, mean, I know that uh, I take it as a compliment that, you, that you've come out. It's not the first lecture, so some of you already know what you're, what you're in for. But I know most of the credit is due to Ari and to this organization, which is, uh, which is just so impressive. Uh, he's also right that this is my favorite series. Um, there's a very simple reason for it, and that is that when you have to come up with, he said, 17 non-repeating uh, sessions, in fact, I offered more than 17 options, but organizations and venues were given the opportunity to select their favorite. So uh, it could have ended up with more than 17. In the end, we had 17. But uh, when you have to pull, out, pull that many rabbits out of your hat, inevitably you have some older rabbits and you have some baby rabbits. And, uh, and I, I think it's natural that I'm most excited about my baby rabbits, uh, meaning what I'm working on right now and what I can share with you that pretty much nobody else, uh, it sounds like kind of hubris to s say it like this, but pretty much no one else on the planet can show you what I will be showing you over the three sessions that we devote to visual Kabbalah. Now that may be because no one in their right mind would take interest in this material. And um, you may soon understand why that is perhaps the case. But I'll try and make my best, uh, my best effort. And uh, I guess the only other thing I would say is that um, some of this may be pitched a little bit higher than the typical scholar-in-residence, synagogue, edutainment lecture, and that's because it's actual research in progress, and I even have, uh, you know, this is a totally exceptional in my presentations in a context such as this, but I have a recent lecture version of what I'm going to share with you in a more extemporaneous fashion, just here so that I can consult it if I need a quick reminder of uh, an important point that may need stressing. So with all of those uh, various things borne in mind, I will continue. And oh, maybe just one last footnote, and that is if you want to come to the same session you've heard already, one of those repeating sessions, you should know that probably as a result of somewhat compromised executive function on my part, I, I'm a very bad uh, repeater. I don't pull things out of the drawer and then say them the same way twice. I'm kind of a, like in this her, her, what, what is it? Heraculus? Hera Heraclitus? Who's the one who said you don't, nobody ever steps in the same river twice because the river changes and the person changes? Heraclitus, I think. Heraclitus. So this is a, a Heraclitian pronouncement. If you come to a repeating session, it won't be the same. Um, but, uh, okay, let's jump in because uh, we only have about 45 minutes, or 45 minutes precisely. Of course, none, nothing I've said just now counts towards that 45 minutes. Uh, but as of this moment, we are counting. So, a few years ago, I found at the Jewish Theological Seminary and subsequently at the Bodleian Library in Oxford a 15th century Italian manuscript. And in this manuscript, I found what you could call, somebody said to me, who was it, Seth? Kabbalah for dummies. Or an introduction to Kabbalah, which incidentally is perhaps the most common kind of Kabbalistic writing that we find historically over the last five, six, seven hundred years. The most typical thing that a Kabbalist does when sitting down to write a book seems to be, let me, let me get you into it. Let me explain to you how to go about studying Kabbalah. Um, 
interesting subject in its own right, this Kabbalistic pedagogy. How do you, how do you introduce this lore to beginners? But this is a particular attempt from the 15th century. Nobody knows who wrote it. It's anonymous. And it has a number of chapters, if I remember correctly, 15 chapters. Most of them are very conceptual. But the very last chapter of the book presents a, a final project, you might say. How do you graduate from this course? Well, that chapter begins with this passage translated um, by me. One who begins the study of this wisdom, chokhmah, which I'll just bracket here and say chokhmah in Hebrew, which means wisdom is also the term used in medieval and early modern Hebrew for science. And here it refers to Kabbalah, which is considered a kind of divine science uh, throughout that era. One who begins the study of this wisdom must know that he must first learn all of the drawings, tziurim, and how all the worlds descend one after another, and all of them must be drawn before him. So what I think is quite extraordinary about this passage, and then I'll tell you in a second what comes after it, is that as the kind of, we don't see here, I, I didn't include in the translation the instructions that follow it, but basically what we see is that the final project calls for a person to visualize all the lore that has been discussed conceptually up to that point in the work, and then transition to drawing it up. You visualize it in your mind's eye, that's nice, but you actually have to take uh, a writing implement and some kind of me medium, uh, parchment or a piece of paper, and you have to start drawing. And we'll see very soon that the drawing was not just a little doodle in the margins of your Kabbalistic notebook, but a very complex diagrammatic form. Now, in, in fact, there are all kinds of Kabbalistic images, diagrams, drawings, and you'll see them. But from the instructions given in this manuscript and other copies of the same work, uh, we're not talking about a little simple diagram, but an extremely ramified artifact, the likes of which I will be able to show you. I don't yet have a diagrammatic parchment scroll or something, or a poster size uh, um, manuscript with something that matches precisely the written description in this manuscript. But I have images that look something like some of the descriptions given in this manuscript that I'll show you momentarily. The other thing I want to mention is that there are no pictures in this manuscript, just to be clear. This is a purely verbal instruction manual for how to create your own cosmological map. And we, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it, but one of my dreams that are sort of meta-academic, you could say, is to uh, have the right person, and I have some people in mind, but have the right person with my assistance follow the directions in this manuscript and to recreate the Kabbalistic map described verbally in its pages. But um, bottom line of slide number one, around 1500, give or take, it was considered absolutely reasonable, but even more, it was considered absolutely necessary for someone learning Kabbalah to include not only consulting diagrammatic 
representations of its cosmology, of its visualization of the divine realm. Um, but to make such a diagram as part of the learning process. Now, despite the fact that we have manuscript diagrams going back to the very earliest surviving Kabbalistic diagrams that are around f from the, around the 14th century, we start getting Kabbalistic diagram or Kabbalistic manuscripts, mostly because Kabbalah isn't that much older than that, first of all, and second of all, because we don't have that many manuscripts that are that much older than that anyway, right? In the best case scenario, it's kind of hard to keep a manuscript in good condition for 700 years. That's understandable. So anything that we have is a kind of miracle. The question isn't why, do we, why don't we have more, but isn't it amazing that we have what we have given weather conditions, persecution, and so forth. So we have six, 700 years of diagram making, of map making, central to doing Kabbalah. But if you try and find a serious treatment of what are these maps? What, what do they mean? How do they work? You literally will not find one. You won't find any of the famous Kabbalah professors, whether it's Gershom Sholem or Moshe Edel, Yehuda Liebes, Elliot Wolfson, maybe one or two that have come uh, to Irvine. You won't find any who have devoted a study to even a single one of these diagrams. Okay, that was a very slight overstatement, but not m significant. What you will find are lots of Kabbalah books that use Kabbalistic manuscript art or diagrams as eye candy. So Kabbalah literature is often decorated with Kabbalistic diagrams, but the diagrams are never addressed in their own right. You can even look at the famous summary of the history of Kabbalah and its major concepts that Sholem wrote for the Encyclopedia Judaica. It came out in 1972 or 1973. And you'll find it actually does have quite a few illustrations. And they're even numbered. Figure one, figure two, figure three. When I see a, a some something like that in a book or an article. So I, 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 first of course I look at the pictures and I see uh, figure one. I look in the body of the text to see where's the discussion of figure one. Well, you can look and look and look and look. You won't find Sholem saying anything about figure one, figure two, figure three, figure four, figure five. It goes on at least 12, 13, maybe eight, I can't remember. In the teens, same thing in the German version that he wrote in 1932. In any case, it's eye candy. Nobody has discussed it, so it's good. Now you have, and now you'll know something about it. Um, what do Kabbalists diagram? Like what, if we had to say in a word, what is it that is being diagrammed other than just God or the realm of divinity or some kind of structure of reality or the archetypes of existence or something like that. If I had to be specific Kabbalistically, well, the answer would be the Sfirot. Sfirot is, is not the only sort of divine or theosophical structure that shows up in Kabbalistic diagrams, but it's certainly the central one. And it's also the main sort of family resemblance characteristic of Kabbalah throughout the ages when we compare Kabbalah to other forms of Jewish esotericism, secret uh, Jewish lore. <clears throat> As I started doing Thursday night in the other series, uh, one of the ways that you can figure out whether you're looking at a Kabbalistic work is to see whether Sfirot play a central role in it. Now, <clears throat> what can I tell you about the Sfirot on one foot without wasting too much time? And that's really a topic for the other series. Well. Something I mentioned the other night was the declaration of Sefer Yetzirah, which is the most famous pre-Kabbalistic 
work of Jewish esotericism that's kind of adopted by the Kabbalah as its foundational work, but you'll find its declaration that there are 10 Sfirot. Whatever there are, there are 10 Sfirot, not 9, not 11. That I spoke a little bit about, but Sefer Yetzirah as a cosmological work does set out this sort of basic system that the Kabbalah will uh, use kind of like a Rorschach inkblot to uh, kind of hold its vision of the cosmos without necessarily trying to figure out what the Sefer Yisira's original sense might have been. But the Sefer Yitzhira sets out this vision of a cosmos that can be broken down into 10 spherot, whatever they are, 10 qualities. In Sefer Yitzhira, as I mentioned Thursday night, they talk about the six dimensions of, or the six vectors of three-dimensional space and the dimension of time as two and the dimension of value as another two. So we get to 10 spherot, but they have nothing to do with the kind of qualities of the divine that, that uh, becomes characteristic of the spherot in Kabbalistic literature. It also uses the 22 letters very centrally. Those are, so the world is sort of made of 22 Hebrew letters and 10 spherot, whatever they are. And one other distinction, which is to say that you can sort of slice the world up into what Sefer Yitzhira called Olam Shana and Nefesh, or world, year, soul, which means Olam, three-dimensional space, Shana, year, time, Nefesh, soul, being that strange dimension of reality that says this is good and this is bad. I like this. I don't like that. That's something that doesn't exist in three-dimensional space or in time. So it's a whole different dimension. That's at the center of Sefer Yitzhira. It turns out that's at the center of classical natural philosophy as we find it in works, for example, by Isidore of Seville, whose work on the re nature, the re the cyclical nature of reality became the foundational work of science for the Latin Middle Ages. And here I'm sort of getting us a little bit into the kind of the backstory of where these diagrams come from. And I've already sort of winked in your direction by saying that wisdom Chokhmah is another word for science, and Kabbalah is considered a science. So when the main source of medieval cosmology uses a category that sounds like a word-for-word -word translation of what's found in Sefer Yetzirah, it should kind of make us perk up a little bit. This is a manuscript of uh, Isidore of Seville that is uh, quite old, like older than any Kabbalistic work certainly that we have. And you can see it, it, at its center it says mundus anus homo, olam shana nefesh. Those are the categories, those are the big three. And it makes famous this diagram of multiple semicircles bounded by a full circle that is able to express the correspondences between various qualities of reality. So in this particular case, you'll have things like the seasons, the four seasons. You'll have the basic uh, traits or characteristics of, uh, of things being hot, cold, wet, dry. Um, and uh, beside it, you can see a, a, a quite an old manuscript from the British Library, which is a commentary on Sefer Yitzhirah, um, attributed to Saadia Gaon of 10th century Baghdad, but not actually written by him. The point being, Jews in the Middle Ages are aware of 
science in the Middle Ages and reading manuscripts <laughs> of scientific works in the Middle Ages and taking note of the central diagrammatic uh, schemes or schemata used in those manuscripts to express reality and its correspondences, right? It's very important in the medieval mindset, not just to talk about reality, but to, but to find ways of communicating how all of reality is interlinked and overlapping and all of the symbols are connected and related. It's, it's both um, a tribute to the wisdom of God's creation, that God created a world that, let's just say, is in a kind of one time it may be expressed as kind of base four system where everything is in fours, you know, the four cups and the four questions and the, right, and the 40 years, everything, is, and you can, four seasons and the four qualities, and you, you use a diagram to reveal these connections in, in an instant to the person beholding that diagram much more easily and express, expressively than would be possible without it. Um, so Jews are doing this. I'm sorry? Sure. A bug? Oh, well, it looks a bit like a bug. It's, uh, but it's, but it's, it's meant to be more of a serpent with legs. I guess that's kind of buggy. Um, but that is a representation of the telly. The, the kind of the cosmic serpent. Uh, and it's related to the uh, perception of, of north and the north star and the axis around which we're, uh, we're spinning. Yes. No, no squished bugs yet. Well, you'll see. I mean, so far we're dealing with pretty basic cosmology. For the four seasons, the four elements. What, what angels and what needles are you speaking about? They spent centuries discussing that. Well, uh, there, there is a kind of okay. thing of the, uh, uh, right, the uh, scholastics asking meaningless questions, but I don't, I don't think it's exactly parallel, although, you know, I mean, it's, sure. Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, these are not attempts to map the world. We have, uh, it's quite interesting to see the relationship between what's called the map, Mapa Mundi, the maps of the world as understood in medieval times and previously, and see ha what happens to maps in the age of discovery. Um, but maps already started changing a lot well before Columbus sailed. Um, and we have uh, very famous schools of map makers uh, in the, already in the 14th century, for example, in Crete, there are famous ma um, Jewish map makers, actually, who developed uh, maps for, uh, particularly for uh, lar long sea voyages, uh, nautical maps, and uh, it's, it's a, it's a great question and a complicated one to answer, but Kabbalistic divinity maps do not show signs of particular interest in changes to uh, our understanding of what's on the physical planet Earth. Their interest in the planet Earth usually consists of its being the end of the chain of being. It, that begins with the infinite Godhead and ends somewhere probably in Cleveland. I'm not sure, but <laughs> whatever the end is, you know, that's, they'll get there, but they're not that interested in going into the details of it. A lot, I like to say that it's um, a division of responsibility. The Kabbalists are the scientists who deal with mapping the divine, and there are other scientists who can map other things. Can I, can I, yeah, let, if it's not very specifically tied to this, 
this slide, I think it would be better if I, if I forged ahead. I've got like six questions right now. Ari, what do you say, man? Let's hold, hold your fire. Let me get you, I didn't even get to real Kabbalistic diagrams yet. You gotta give me a second here. You gotta give me a second. I've used 20 minutes of my 45 according to my prompter. Um, the, okay, this continues. Message, so clear message number one. Kabbalists appropriate the dominant schemes of contemporary science. Kabbalists are reading science and they are noticing the most prominent tools used by scientists to express their ideas and saying we can use those forms to express our ideas as well. It's not so hard to understand. Today if a guy was a Kabbalist or a gal was a Kabbalist, then he or she would use pie graphs and, uh, and uh, Venn diagrams or who knows what, uh, 3D modeling. Uh, you, you use the best that you've got in, in your contemporary repertoire. Um, so as you can see, these are images from uh, mi medieval encyclopedic work from around the year 1200. And you see very typical things like the concentric circles that are typical of astronomical representation of the cosmos going back to the Greeks, the Ptolemaic um, uh, geocentric worldview. The earth is in the middle, surrounded by the seven, uh, surrounded by the planetary bodies, the moon and, um, and, the, and the planets, the fixed stars, the zodiac is often represented as well in the outer band and beyond it just the first, the first cause, unless it's the prime mover, unless it's a Christian manuscript that's pushing a religious point, in which case you'll have this image, and then you'll have Jesus and the saints just, just above it and beyond it. Okay? The other thing that you'll see, and I'll get back to this more, is what's called the tree of porphyry, which is used in porphyries. It's called the tree of porphyry because por porphyry, who was a commentator on Aristotle, um, com commented on Aristotle's work known as the Categories. And although we don't have any manuscripts dating from the time of Porphyry, this kind of tree diagram was the one that was used by the Middle Ages and certainly by the 12th century to represent Aristotle's Categories, which was, a, again, a central work. If you were a learned person in the 12th or 13th centuries, probably for centuries, Thereafter, you would have studied Aristotle's categories, which talk about the chain, uh, talks about the chain of being, how, how, so, how the ultimate un, undivided ground of reality ends up being, you know, your Uncle Bud or whatever. That's, that's what cat the categories is about. And I'll come back to it a little bit. Um, so you, when you look at this, do you recognize any of those? Uh, schemes, it might not jump out at you immediately because it's pretty square, but what we're seeing here is a very early uh, diagram. Uh, this is from, a, uh, also found in Italy, 14th century diagram, and <coughs> this is uh, certainly an iconic figure in Kabbalah, you may remember having seen it even in some of the slides I put up before of the eye candy. This is the structure of the Ptolemaic world or cosmos with concentric circles because the circle is the perfect form and God created the world using the perfect circular form. But the spherotic world, the divine world is also presumed to be structured in the very same way. And of course, it would only make sense for the divine world to be structured in the same way because our world is a continuation from a structural flow point of view to the supernal world. So if the, if the um, so, so it's kind of mi microcosm, macrocosm relationship. Now, in this little diagram is, the, of course, the macrocosm, and Ptolemaic cosmos is the microcosm, because this is the map of God, as opposed to the map of creation. 
and the outermost uh, sphere is the letter Kaf, standing for Keter, or crown, which is the first of the ten Sfirot. And inside it is meant to be a suggestion of another sphere, this time established by the first initial of Chokhmah, or wisdom, the letter Chet. And inside it, we have a Bet. It's a little hard to see, but this is the Bet for Bina. Inside, this is a Gimel. In this case, they're using Gedulah instead of Chesed for that Sfira associated with love and, and, and um, giving without discernment. And then there's a pay for pachad, which they're using fear instead of gvura, judgment, which is more typically used in popular works today at least. Taf for tiferet, nun for netzach, hey for hod, yud for yisod, mem for malchut. Deliberately evoking that concentric circle structure. I say that's the number two iconic Kabbalistic diagram because obviously the number one is the tree of life. That's what we're supposed to be talking about today. And Kabbalists call the tree of life generally ilanot, that's plural. A tree of life is an ilan. Same thing that you'll find when you make a donation to the JNF, you want to plant an ilan, a tree. So that's a singular Kabbalistic diagram of the structure of the divine is an ilan. If you have two, you have two ilanot. Um, and what you're seeing in the background is a very early parchment, a single sheet of parchment, um, hardly treated. I mean, it's obviously prepared for writing upon, but you still see something that I think is far less common after, uh, after around the year 1500, and that is the, man, the parchment isn't even cut to a square or a rectangle. You're still seeing the shape of the animal on it. Now, it's not prehistoric, but they thought that, I guess they must have thought it looked cool. And uh, they certainly did know how to cut <laughs> parchment to different sizes in the 15th century. Um, now, I've superimposed upon it a statement made by the most important Kabbalist in the early modern period, perhaps accepting Isaac Luria, Moses Cordovero, the Ramak, and his magnum opus is called the Orchard of Pomegranates, Pardes Rimoni, and, in, and he does for Kabbalah what Kero did for Halakha around the same time in the same place, in the Shulchan Aruch. That is, let me summarize everything for you. In fact, it's more like the Beit, this, pardon me if this is too much, more like the Beit Yosef than the Shulchan Aruch. <laughs> right? if, that, for, for, if there was one person for whom that was meaningful, then Dayenu. <laughs> it's an attempt to comprehend three or four hundred years of Kabbalistic writing and organize it and distill it and give it to the reader in an era of some um, real uh, rupture, right? This is a guy whose last name is Cordovero from Cordoba, writing a, in a generation after the expulsion from Spain. And like Caro, invested in this project of somehow taking stock of an inventory of the whole tradition that's relevant to the particular magnum opus in question. Um, and making sure that that is consolidated and passed on to the next generation in an organized way and in a way that suits Kol Am Yisrael, the whole Jewish people. This is not, it's also very interesting, not so relevant to the topic, but this is the era where Jews are thinking more and more globally about our community, not just local. Right? But in spot, in the 16th century, these rabbis like Joseph Caro and Moses Cordovero are thinking of themselves as global Jewish leaders right? with something that they need to take, resp they need to take responsibility for. They need to take responsibility for um, Jews everywhere. So that said, he opens his great book on Kabbalah, the first, you could call it Kabbalah, the first 300 years or something like that. He opens it up by 
first of all, discussing the sefirot. What are they? Is this a theological problem? Isn't it a bit weird for Jews to be talking about how God has these ten qualities? Sounds a bit idolatrous even, right? And is, are, the, are these ten sefirot, are they God's essence? Or are they instruments that God used in creation? And it's all the kinds of, you could say, theological, theosophical um, considerations that he's developing in the first five sections of the book. And then he gets to the sixth section, and he says, okay, now I explained to you why we have these sefirot, and it's okay. Now let's talk about visualizing them. That's very important. He agrees with, in a way you could say, with the manuscript that I shared with you at the beginning of the presentation. It's not real before you visualize it. Are there problems with visualizing it also? Yes. Does he talk about that too? Yes. But the first thing to do after you've established that it's even okay for there to be spherot is what do they look like and how do you present them? And is that part of Kabbalah? Is that what? What's the significance of this part of Kabbalah? And he says, okay, I'm going to put, a, I have a whole section of the work. It's not a chapter, because his book is, you could say it's a, he, he, it's a section that has subchapters. So that's why it says chapter one, because he has many chapters just on this section of the visualization of God, of the Sfirot. And he says, this chap, this is, in this opening chapter, treating the visualization of God, I'm going to be talking about the forms of the spherot, by which I mean the order of their arrangement. How are they lined up? How do we visualize them? Are they circles within circles? Are they, you know, what's the form? Uh, what's their, the truth is, seder amidatan, I translated it here very literally, but seder Seder Amidatan, if you look in lexicons of medieval scientific Hebrew, believe it or not, there is one famous one by Joseph Klatskin that's now being, it was written almost 100 years ago, but it's being updated now in Hamburg in an online edition that you can already access. Because so many scientific works were translated into Hebrew in the Middle Ages that they developed a whole vocabulary for the various sciences that were being, uh, being presented for the first time in Hebrew. So one of the things I always look at is how, how does this word get used by other people in the same period, not just Kabbalists. And one of the things I discovered was that Seder Amidatan, if you would show this book to a medieval Jewish philosopher, that he would say, he would translate it as their constellation. This is a Hebrew way of expressing constellations of stars. Okay. So what is the right constellation of the Sfirot would be a very good translation given the context in which this was written. Okay, the, the opinions of Kabbalists are many. There's a difference of opinion, like everything else in Judaism. There's no pope to decide. And one of the things that Cordovero has to do throughout his work is help people figure out what the bottom line is, because there has been no decree from on high about what the right opinion is. One thing, though, is common to all the Kabbalists, he says, and that is that Kabbalists draw images. They draw forms. Surah in medieval Hebrew is used in its, both in its sense, if you know f the word form, whether in Aristotle or Plato, you find it in both of those senses in medieval Hebrew using the word surah. So they're forms, and they draw these forms on parchment, yeriot, and these artifacts are called ilanot. So he's basically given us a definition of what Kabbalists themselves, ref what He's given us a definition of the tree of life, you could say, as Kabbalists understood it for hundreds of, hundreds of years. And that is an image of the constellation of the Sfirot inscribed on parchment and called a tree. Called a tree. And he says that, of course, in his book, you don't see exactly such a thing, but he's describing it. 
But if you go to the Vatican or to the Parma Library or to the Bodleian Library or to the Cambridge Library or to the Jewish Theological Seminary Rare Books and Manuscripts Room when it eventually reopens, and apparently there's even one in Los Angeles somewhere, you will find parchments like this one or in many other forms with these constellations of the spherot inscribed upon them, and this is a central Kabbalistic tool, a central Kabbalistic artifact for hundreds of years. Now, why are Kabbalists imagining that the structure of the Godhead should be expressed in terms of an arboreal diagram? That's a bit strange. The Ptolemaic concentric circle model makes sense, but makes sense just in terms of the presumed structural continuity of all levels of existence and all of reality. It's all microcosm, macrocosm, and everything is similar, right, in that pre-modern worldview, which some of us still enjoy dipping into now and again. Um, what, what's with this tree business? Why the tree? Why is the, what's the Kabbalistic tree all about? Where did that come from? So here I, I want to uh, reiterate something and add something. I mean, well, I'll st start by adding, first of all, when, even when I say the tree of life or when, when Ari advertises the series as uh, you know, history of the tree of life, um, what do you think of? Like what comes to mind first? The Garden of Eden, of course. And the tree of knowledge seems more appropriate than the tree of life. Interesting, interesting point also. But both the tree of knowledge and the tree of life are in the same story. Right. So you could say, uh, you know, in good academies, yes. Uh, Family tree. Family tree. That's also very important. It's, it's my second point. Uh, or it's part of the second point. But the first point is Jews think a lot about trees because every Jew who's ever opened up the first book of the Torah very soon encounters the trees in the garden that God planted, and this, you could call it arboreal mythologomena. That's a nice, right? Now you have a new word to post on Twitter. You can post it to the president's Twitter page. Arboreal mythologomena. Um, big part of Jewish mythology going back 3,000 years. The tree, knowledge, life. So that's something that really resonates and comes back in uh, spades, you could say, mid in medieval Kabbalah. The Bahir, which is one of the earliest works associated with Kabbalah, even though it's, it's, it's a weird book that isn't exactly Kabbalistic um, either, but it it's again, it's a work that's more Kabbalistic than Sefer Yetzirah, but doesn't seem to have completely crossed the, crossed the line into full intelligibility as Kabbalah. I can explain that at another time, if anyone cares. Uh, but this is, for example, something that the Bahir says about trees. God is speaking in this passage. It is I who have planted this Ilan, that the whole world may delight in it, and with it I have spanned the all, called it all, for on it depends the all, and from it emanates the all. All things need it, and look upon it, and yearn for it, and it, it is from it that all souls fly forth. I was alone when I made it, and no angel can raise himself above it. Who was there with me to whom I would have confided this secret? So this is the Bahir's cosmic tree. No diagrams there either, but simply, again, this kind of mythic sense of the tree as the cosmic all that this is a good metaphor, maybe not yet at the point where you'd want to say, I will visualize the cosmic all as a tree that I might see in the park, but something about the tree and its roots and its trunk and its branches and its fruit, and this is an apt metaphor for the cosmic all in the Bahir. To your left, I've illustrated this typical medieval rendering of the tree of porphyry, that Aristotelian tree that's in every work of medieval logic and rhetoric and so forth. This is extremely popular. And the other place where everybody in the Middle Ages in Europe will be seeing 
this arboreal diagram is in the famous tree of Jesse. The tree of Jesse, which Seth alluded to by saying family tree, the ultimate family tree in the Middle Ages is the family tree that shows people Jesus' lineage. It's on almost, I mean, you'll be hard-pressed to find a church that doesn't include a stained-glass window or a painting of some kind showing a, a Jesus' family tree, going back to Jesse, the father of King David. So uh, that tree uh, scheme, that tree metaphor, and the... Uh, and the tree diagram is incredibly prominent in medieval science and uh, Christianity. And, of course, I said already, Judaism and the whole biblical tradition. There's another uh, passage in the Bahir that connects it a little bit to what we were learning Thursday night in Sefer Yetzirah. The 12, um, the 12 diagonals of Sefer Yetzirah, the 12 uh, places that the expanded three-dimensional cube uh, interse intersects. I know I'm not finding the right words in my uh, Euclidean vocabulary, right? But if you, when, you're ex when you have the three-dimensional space, it creates a cube with 12 uh, ribs. And this is, this is called the tree in the Bahir. Okay, so that's classical Kabbalah. Getting back to Cordovero, you see a very interesting move, and that is that he also is willing to say that Ilan is a, is a word that can be used to express entire, um, in, entire, uh, let's see how you do it, Machanot, constellations. Yeah, right. That, that a kind of constellation of Spirot in one of the Kabbalistic worlds is called an ilan. So ilan becomes, it, it becomes a, 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 a term that can express this whole uh, rovad, how do you say, this whole uh, layer or, uh, yeah, this whole layer of cosmic reality that you might have thought, you know, we could find a good word from astronomy or some some other discipline to talk about besides calling it a tree. But in fact, you see here that he's going through the whole chain of being, how we go from the infinite, un indivisible Godhead to all the particularity of reality. And all of these levels of reality are being named with terms taken from astronomy with this insertion of Ilan, or the tree, uh, among them. So we have a concept that's on the one hand botanical, there are trees in the garden, and there are trees in the Garden of Eden, but it, it is being put forward as a code word for cosmic dimensions of reality that, are, uh, that correspond to entire uh, Kabbalistic worlds. So, just to recap here, these are some of the earliest parchment trees of life that have been found to date uh, from early, let's say from about the middle of the 14th century through around 1500, we have a number of these relatively simple poster-sized parchments, and then they get progressively bigger. I just have a couple of minutes left in uh, this afternoon's presentation, but I want to show you a couple of things so that you feel like you got your money's worth, so to speak. Um, a few uh, moments from Cordovero's treatment. We didn't really get into it yet, but he says he's going to tell us about the different configurations or constellations of the spherot. How should they be visualized? How should the divine world be visualized? So he takes us through various options. I just want to show you a few of them because they're not what you'd expect. And uh, when we get to something that you will have expected, we'll know that we've arrived and it's time to take our break for today and continue next time together. So the first thing that he says is that some people visualize the Sfirot as the letter Aleph. 
This, by the way, is Cordovero's own handwriting, his own copy of Pardes Rimonim that you can view from the comfort of your lounge chair in the Vatican's library where uh, it's available as a high resolution scan. Um, and this is from the first printed edition, printed in Krakow in 1591. So that I think it's kind of interesting to compare the autograph manuscript and the earliest printed edition. You can see, for those of you who are a little bit uh, Hebrew enabled, that the names of the Sfirot have been projected upon different parts of the letter Aleph, Keter, Chokhmah, and Bina up on the high part of the Aleph, Gedulah, Gvura, Tiferet, Yisod, Malchut. Malchut is this interesting part that you don't normally see on an Aleph, this protrusion. Um, and you have these kind of fingers and toes that aren't discussed in, the, in Cordovero's texts, but do seem to correspond to one of the Mishnahs of Sefer Yitzirah that speaks about the tens being cor uh, corresponding to the fingers and toes and being a kind of balance equilibrium, which is a s interesting in its own right. Although I just want to say, like on a kind of theoretical level, you can have a textual discussion of some topic and then make the image and include things in the image that aren't in the textual discussion. So the image isn't there only to serve and clarify the text, but the image has its own value and its image is able to communicate things that are for one reason or another uh, not included in the text. So they have, if you, didn't, if you didn't print this as part of the book, which many people have <coughs> chosen not to do in history, uh, you'd be missing something. But you, if you took liberties with it and thought, hey, well, I don't know, why did he put those hairs on the Aleph? You'd also be missing out on the fact that Cordovero seems to have wanted to communicate something that was relating to an issue that he doesn't raise in the text, but nevertheless uh, wanted to clarify. You know? Cordovero says something very interesting about this one, and that is, it's not like that in reality. This is going to sound very bizarre to our ears, but for Cordovero... It's important to say, it's important to come to a conclusion about what the actual structure of the divine world is in reality. This is not a discussion of symbolism. This is a discussion, as far as he's concerned, of the nature and structure of reality. So he says, people who do this, they've misunderstood. This is a symbol. Kabbalists draw the spherot as the letter Aleph because they want to convey an idea that despite the fact that there are ten spherot, God is one, and oneness prevails over all. That's an idea symbolized by this image, but that's not reality, and he wants to know what reality is. So he says we've got to keep going, and then he shows us the spherot as a circle. He's got two. These are separate. The one on top here is the circle, based also on a statement in Sefer Yitzirah that their end is in their beginning. Their end is in their beginning. And he says, sorry, cop, sorry, sorry guys, this is an attempt to say something about the structure of reality, but you got it wrong, you misunderstood. What Sefer Yitzirah is talking about over there is something entirely different, and it's, it's a, an issue that he treats elsewhere. He sort of says to the reader, I'll, take you, I'll explain what it really means later. And later, he says that the, the image of the end in being in the beginning is connected to a totally different Kabbalistic concept of reflected light, of direct light and reflected light. And he makes entirely separate diagrams to express the nature of direct and reflected divine energy, but says, don't think that the spherot are in a circle. And then, just to conclude within a minute, I promise, I promise, he starts getting into things that look familiar, like, like this kind of cubic presentation that puts Keter, Bina, and Chokhmah on the first line. And he, he has his reasons. He says that we're getting closer, but we didn't get there yet. Till he finally gets to the iconic form that uh, is most familiar to most of us today, the one that's often called uh, as a kind of Kabbalistic sh verbal shorthand for this <coughs> configuration, uh, uh, Sigolta, Sigol, Sigol. 
Segolta, Segulta or Segolta, referring to, if you look in a book to read Torah, one of the uh, chanting, cantillation signs is a Segolta, it's this symbol. When you see it under a letter in Hebrew, it's a Segol, the vowel that, that just sounds like eh. Um, so when you say Segolta, Segol, Segol, it means the first three Sfirot are shaped like this, and then the second two configurations are shaped like this. So meaning, in Cordovero's manuscript with my superimpositions, Keter Chochma Bina, Segolta, Gedula Gvura Tiferet Segol, Netzachod Yisod Segol. And he has his reasons for preferring that over some other competitors at the time. He's very unhappy um, with... Uh, there you see it again, but he's <coughs> this this version he sort of accepts but doesn't love, where the first three spherot are a pillar above the rest instead of uh, a kind of pyramid shape. This was very popular in Italy around Cordovero's time, as you can see in the top frame here of one of the most elaborate parchments that have reached us from around the year 1500. You're seeing here just the first three spherot of Keter. Chochmah and Bina, and uh, you, each of the circles is filled with uh, dis either discussions of that sphira or various appellations that can be used to refer to that sphira. So it's kind of like a Kabbalistic lexicon, and the rest of the diagram <coughs> or parchments is filled with a kind of uh, compilation of the greatest works of Kabbalah in its first two, three hundred years of literary activity. It's really fascinating. I hope to spend a little bit more time with that as we, uh, as we continue together in the next couple of weeks. That's a bit of a, a quick view from above of this, of this Vatican manuscript. And I'm afraid that this is probably the best place for us to stop before we can we continue. I feel like I missed one. I don't want to go back too much, but it's not it's not hugely critical. But he also does a very interesting thing with one model where right and left have been flipped, so that instead of chesed being on the right, instead of love being on the right and judgment being on the left, you have some kabbalists who put judgment on the right and love on the left. And so Cordovero gets into this whole discussion about points of view. How, are we looking at God? Are we, is it our perspective or is it God's perspective represented in the right-left that we're seeing in these images? Um, and uh, he ultimately comes down in favor of understanding the right-left perspective of the Sfirot as, as um, simultaneously God's and ours, you could say. He says basically, um, we're not talking about a mir mirror image, but more like a, sh more like a shadow or something. That, and uh, it's, uh, it's a perspective that we share, especially when we are in states of dvekut, um, of clinging to God. We share in this perspective. So we retain, you could say, the divine perspective in our visualizations on, on paper. Uh, so that was a very, that was a first dip into this material. We'll get a little bit more into it uh, next week, but uh, Just a quick question too. sure. Right. I think um, I think that there are multiple uses for these scrolls, and I'll get uh, I will try and address that more pointedly next time we get together. But you have certainly everything from how the 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 material that I began with today. You make the scroll to consolidate your learning. You might also make the scroll as a kind of testimony to your mastery of the material. Now, they're all different kinds of scrolls. You saw the one with the animal shape still on the parchment. Um, 
that's a very different artifact than a one yard by four yard, I'm converting from the metric system here on, my, right on the fly, um, parchment <coughs> roll that, that has sewn together four or five pieces of parchment like you have in a Sefer Torah, except that it opens vertically rather than horizontally, and then inscribed with tremendous investment, artistic investment, scribal investment, some of these have gold leaf. What you're seeing here, these spots are actually gold leaf that's been applied to the parchment. We know that the Medici family, popes and, and, and prominent uh, uh, patrons of the arts in the Renaissance, ordered one of these. Non-Jews were interested in acquiring them. And then you say, well, what were they going to do with them? Well, they had cabinets of curiosities. They had all kinds of treasures. And this could be something that they could bring out. They could either mount it and hang it like, a, like other maps on their walls, which was done in the Renaissance, um, or display it on special occasions. And in the pre-modern period, when people saw an image, they didn't think of it like we do, even a map. They thought of it as a kind of virtual reality. So if you had a map of the Holy Land on your wall in the 16th century in Florence, you would look at it, and it would be your pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So if you have this map of the divine realm in your home, and you take it out and you look at it, you are having a virtual reality experience of being in the divine realm. That's tip of the iceberg. Seth. You use cosmology. We're going about the two questions. Sorry, my bad. cosmology a number of times. Yes. And I'm assuming with general reference to the nature of the universe or the universe at large. I'm wondering in terms of cosmology and ontology. Yes. The nature of the study of existence. Yes. Would you consider the work of Kabbalah study of Kabbalah ontology or no? I would say... 30 seconds and So Seth is asking, I use the word cosmology a lot, but I didn't use the word ontology. And what's the, in, on, a, you know, on one foot, what's the, can, what do I have to say about ontology and Kabbalah, I guess? Say, uh, I would, I'll do it faster. No. I think one of the interesting things that sort of suggested, even by the material I presented today, is that the Kabbalists took a tool that was used to visualize the relationship between concepts, but that had no, it had epistemological value, meaning that it helped people know something about God, or, sorry, excuse me, if you're talking about a family tree or you're talking about Aristotle's categories, then the tree diagram has epistemological value because it helps you know the categories of being or how Jesus was related to King David, okay? But when somebody like Cordovero says, and he's not the first to say it, the tree diagram associated with Aristotle's categories is actually an accurate representation of the constellation of the divine spheres that really exist as part of reality and all of reality's subsequent substructures, mirrors, mirror those, uh, that, that elemental shape, that el elemental configuration, the Kabbalists are saying that uh, we are, we, you could say, the Kabbalists are ontologizing that figure. They're saying it really exists. It's part of being. It's part of nature. It's part of divinity and part of creation. And it's, and it's real. It's not just something that helps us know about God because it expresses uh, you know, priority, hierarchy, what's central, what's peripheral. That's the way everyone else is using this diagrammatic form. The, the Jews are saying that's not just a diagrammatic form. That is the structure of reality as it really is. So it's an ontologized medieval logical diagram that uh, is at the heart of Kabbalah. Sure. When you're talking about perspectives, from going back to your first slide where it encourages every person who's learned this to mm -hmm. now create an illustration of what they've learned, it would seem to me that that's encouraging a lot of artistic um, license in right. each person 
to create their own vision of what they've just learned. And if that's the case, then there's no one way necessarily to, to illustrate this. Is that correct? And are these diagrams saying, at least the early ones, maybe saying more about the artist yeah. or the person who studied than they are about there being only one that's way a to great, do this? That's a great question. I probably should do uh, up front next week a bit, a bit of quick show and tell just to give you a, a more uh, consolidated sense of the full range of of possibilities here, but you're, you're correct, and it's more complicated than that, like everything always is, right? You're correct that everybody makes their own Elan at the end of the day. Every Kabbalist makes their own Elan, and when I look at six, seven hundred years of diagrammatic manuscripts, and I see, well, this one was produced in Renaissance Italy, but this one was produced in 17th century Yemen or Kurdistan, you better believe that they don't look the same because people sitting in 17th century Kurdistan aren't doing their art just like uh, people sitting in Florence in 1470, right? It's, so that's true. And it's also true that, um, that Kabbalah is, ha has kind of objectivistic tendencies. So it's still important for someone like Cordovero to say the basic structure is this, this configuration. And he doesn't want everybody co contemplating the material and coming up with their own idea of how to configure the sphero. He wants to establish what reality looks like. Once he's done that, according to him, but he doesn't, he doesn't adopt the perspective that everything is relative, and I'm just going to say that, in my humble opinion, that reality is like this. So it's a bit of a dance. It's a bit of a negotiation between a freedom and, and uh, objective reality that's pushing back. I, I have a, received this morning an article that, just, that was just published that I wrote in the recent past. It's unfortunately for some of you at least in Hebrew at this point, but uh, one of the, I guess the a central focus of the article is what Kabbalists did with, with a very simple diagram produced by Chaim Vital around the year 1600. And I show how some Kabbalists thought, well, this is kind of a, an open etch-a-sketch for me to play with. And, and that it was meant to be a, 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 a kind of an arena for, for, for play that's never, bounded play, we might call it, right? The game can be played within this court. And other Kabbalists thought, this is no good. We need to populate this with, with facts, you know, and there's a correct way of, of doing it. So you see in the, re in the reception history of one of one diagram, the people who took it as a kind of invitation to, to play um, and speculate and visualize in a speculative way, and others who thought, no, there's no room for, this is not an arena for free play and speculation. We need to ascertain what is precisely located right there, and we need to inscribe it and, and label it just you know, once and for all in the correct way. I have to call it now. So. That's it, Coach.